Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for, uh, thanks for the message today from uh, Jossie. Uh, what an inspiring and challenging message that was. Um, while we pack to go, uh, the Lord emptied himself to come. And how grateful we are that he came to us uh, to serve and to become a sacrifice for us. Uh, thank you for his good and finished work of which you've given us all the benefits of. Uh, we thank you. Tonight, as we go through your word, I pray your spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. Your word is truth. And would you take what is yours and help it to become part of us, please. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So from time to time, there are young people who come to the class, and I always want to help you uh, in every form and fashion of life that I can. And so here's the line that I use to get Laurie. Uh, so last night I was reading the book of Numbers, and then I realized I don't have yours. Oh, yeah, you're laughing, but write it down. It'll work. It'll work. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Okay, uh, so, gosh, this is so crazy. What was Jossie talking about today? He was talking about living on mission, wasn't he? How coincidental. Tonight, we're going to be talking about living on mission. Amazing how this happens. So, for me, uh, this whole idea first started percolating in my head. Many of you will remember back in the what is it, late 80s, hmm. early 90s, uh, when Stephen Covey popularized the idea of, you know, write down a mission statement for your life. And many businesses adopted that, and, and they still do, right, today. What mission? Meaning, what are you all about? What is your life going to stand for? What's it going to count for? His, one of his lines was... Um, uh, oh, shoot. Uh, huh. Well, that's fun. Becoming a man of a certain age, things <laughs> fly out of your head. Gosh, it was right there, and then it's gone. <laughs> Something about, um, are, uh, is your life living you, or are you living your life? That probably wasn't it. But it might have been something like that. And the point of it was, if you're not... Uh, if you don't have a compass for your life, uh, there's so many things that are going to pull you off and distract you, you, you won't probably get to the things that you think are important. So he encouraged everyone to have a mission statement. I don't know, some of you may even have a mission statement for your life, which is a wonderful thing. Remember the exercise he encouraged you to do, which was Stand at your, at your graveside, and what would you like people to say about you? I never did that, but I thought, no one's coming, so why do I care? <laughs> I won't care. I'll be with Jesus. So, anyway, have a mission statement for your life. If Israel would have had a mission statement for their lives, it would have come out of this, Okay? When you look at the first, so this is called, ready? You're going to want to write this down. The Hexateuch, 
Oh, yeah, you've heard of the Pentateuch. Oh, yeah, Hexateuch, the first six books of the Old Testament. There's things, there's books that advance the story, and then there's books that fill in some, they're sort of like parenthetical books because they fill in a lot of information. Okay, Genesis and Exodus, we're introduced to the story and the story gets carried along. Leviticus, the story really didn't get advanced. We talked about the priests and the sacrifices and the calendars and some things like that. How do I approach this God and how do I live with this God? The story really isn't moving forward, but it's being amplified. The next book that moves the story along is the book of Numbers. The book of Deuteronomy then, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's the Pentateuch. The book of Deuteronomy doesn't advance the story. It's really five sermons that Moses gives before he passes off the scene and uh, Israel, in a sense, passes on to Joshua. And then Joshua, the story advances because they actually get where they were supposed to get under Moses, but they never got there. They were supposed to get to the promised land. Right? Okay. How do we know that? Genesis 12. When I keep going back to Genesis 12, this is why. This is, the, this is the story. God promised Abraham, who Jacob became Israel, he promised them an inheritance that included, it kind of fell under this big umbrella of the promised land. In Joshua, that inheritance is finally possessed. So in Genesis and Exodus, we are promised an inheritance. In Joshua, we get that inheritance. What happens in between? Testing of faith. In Genesis and Exodus, I lived in, sort of, so to speak, I lived in Egypt, which is where my perceived security was. By the time I get to Joshua, I want to live in the promised land because that's where I'm going to experience God's best. God's best comes to me in the promised land. It doesn't come to me in Egypt. It comes to me in the promised land. What's in between? The wilderness. The wilderness where unbelief and disobedience abound. So in this story, there's a promise... Now, by saying story, I don't want you to think I think it's a fable, right? There are true stories, okay? And what I mean by story is it is a true story. Does that make sense? I don't see enough of you nodding your head. Nod your head. Yes. Got it. Okay. They're promised an inheritance. They receive that inheritance, but they have to actually go get it. They have to step out of their comfort zone, and they have to go get their inheritance. So if Israel were, sorry, if, if God were Stephen Covey, and Israel was a person listening to this, what's the mission statement for your life thing, if we would have peeked over an Israelite's paper as he or she was writing his or her mission statement, this is what their mission statement from God would have said. Press into my inheritance. Press into my inheritance. Every Israelite would have had their little um, planner deal 
And on that first page where it would have said, my mission statement, they would have written in, press into my inheritance. Why do they have the idea of an inheritance? Because they were promised one back here. Okay. So far, so good. If every person in Israel had one of those little planners on the mission statement page, it would have said, press into my inheritance. The book of Numbers, then, is the story, the true story, of them trying to do that. They're going to try and press into their inheritance. That's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks, the book of Numbers, them pressing into their inheritance inheritance. Book of Numbers, the one word I put on it is obedience. And I think it might not be quite as clear coming out of the first nine chapters, but there's plenty of places where it says they did exactly as Moses commanded. So there's obedience even in the first nine chapters, but we'll talk more as we get into the book of Numbers about obedience. Who wrote it? It's part of the Pentateuch. So Moses wrote it. When? Around 1406. Again, where? On the plains of Moab. Uh, that's all from Deuteronomy chapter 1. It talks about Moses writing all these things down uh, on the plains of Moab. All of that's in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Why did Moses write this? Why did God have Moses record all these things? To exhort Israel's second generation not to repeat the grave error of the faithlessness of their fathers, but instead to walk by faith in God's word and intentionally press into their promised inheritance of Canaan. Remember, Moses writes Deuteronomy at the end of the wilderness sojourn. And so the whole first generation except for Joshua and Caleb, and if you were 20 years old or younger, that's you and your children. The first generation is gone by the time the book of Deuteronomy is written. Numbers is the story of the first generation who had been redeemed from Egypt and taken on a journey. You remember all this, but this is important. So this is exhorting Israel's second generation because Moses is writing all this stuff down after the fact. He's exhorting the second generation not to repeat the mistakes, the errors of the first generation, their fathers and mothers. Don't do that. Do something different. There's an implied question in the book of Numbers. From God's point of view, there's obviously more to being rescued from Egypt than just being counted among the number of the redeemed. If he would have just wanted to redeem them from Egypt, they would have had a party and maybe moved to the wilderness and set up shop. From God's point of view, there is something more than just being redeemed, just being counted among the number of the redeemed in Egypt. Chapter 1, the first few verses tell us 
from God's point of view, it's not just enough to be counted among the number of the redeemed. There's fulfilling God's expectation of being one of those on whom he can count to pursue his will and his mission in the world. He didn't redeem them for no mission. He redeemed them for a mission. Here's his question to Israel. Israel, are you one, God speaking, are you one on whom I can count to press into my mission for your generation? God wants them to write this down for their mission statement, the mission statement of their life. Press into my inheritance. He has an expectation that they are not just coming out of Egypt, hooray, we're redeemed, but they go on mission with God to accomplish what he wants done by that generation in the world. That's his expectation. He says it right up here in the first few verses of chapter 1, which we're just about to take a look at. The first thing that we've got to get, a, uh, get our arms around is in your handout. And so Larry's included on page 1, 2, 3, page 4. Oh, it says that right there. Page 4. You'll see a post-Exodus timeline of events. This is showing the year, the month, and the day on a calendar of all the different things that happened at least through um, the beginning of Joshua. Please notice the numbers 713, offerings for the altar begin in the second year, the first month, the first day. Skip down a couple of lines. There's another number seven reference. Then there's a numbers eight reference. Then there's a numbers nine reference. Then there's a numbers one reference. These chapters are not put into chronological order. The events of chapters seven, eight, and nine chronologically come before chapter one. So now you have a way that you can piece this together. Because you're reading it saying, why did we all of a sudden jump to when the tabernacle was this and people brought that and they counted it up? And Numbers is the book of counting. So they were counting up all the things. Counting up all the people, counting up all the offerings. So it made sense to include the counts in this one place. But as you're working your way through these chapters... Chapters 7, 8, and 9 come before chapter 1. So the first thing you got to do is get your arms around the chronology of these chapters. What happens in chapters 7, 8, and 9? All the tribes bring the same offerings. For, and did you read all those? Every one of them? I don't believe you. I know what you did. You read one and said on number two, this is the same as number one. 
and you went all the way to number 12 and you said, look, number 12 is the same as number one. I bet they're all the same in between there. I know what you did. I know what you did. And you're correct. All 12 tribes brought the identical offerings. uh, Eight, they prepare things. The Levites are dedicated. Nine, they celebrate the second Passover, which occurs before chapter one. So they celebrate the Passover. Yay! They have a great time. This whole section, chapter seven, eight, and nine, the people's mood is one of celebration because of their devotion for, from God's deliverance. God's deliverance, because they've come out of Egypt, they've built the tabernacle in the wilderness, God has come down, chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40, shoom, here comes God, now comes Numbers 7, 8, and 9. All these people have dedicated stuff, and they have the second Passover. They're joyfully and generously, chapter 7, giving God their best. Chapter 8, they walk in the light as his lights. That's why we talked about the candelabra, the candlestick, the uh, lampstand. Thank you. <laughs> talked about the lampstand. They see themselves as God's servants, and they celebrate the Passover as a blessing of freed men and women. And there's an important topic, an important theme that comes out in these chapters. Who you worship determines how you walk. Who you worship determines how you walk. And he's going to now move into how they should walk. But who you worship determines how you walk. If you worshiped a, remember the, if you were here uh, for one of Jossie's messages, remember he said at one point, I'm not going to show you a picture or a video because it would, he said it would, you know, be too confrontational, meaning it would, it would assault your eyes and your sensibilities. Remember, and he showed that child on the, remember all that stuff? Okay. What does that God, little g, not really a God, what does that God require of his people? Child sacrifice. Who you worship determines how you walk. The guy with the, with the whip. What does his God demand of him? Until I bleed and I can take some of my blood, put it in a bowl, and take it in and give it to him as an offering. Who you worship determines how you walk. This is a fundamental principle across religion, but particularly how is the God of the Jews, the God of Israel, different than the pagan deities all over this area where the Israelites are? Those pagan deities want grotesque, uh, licentious things done. And the God of Israel says, whoa, 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 whoa. No. Who you worship determines how you walk. And how we walk is a reflection on our God and what he has done for us, not what he demands of us to gain his favor. 
God's deliverance and presence prompts their wholehearted devotion. This is the setup for chapter 1. They are worshiping him. They've brought their best. They're devoted to him. They're loving the fact that he's freed them from Egypt. They celebrate the Passover one year later as freed men and women. What a wonderful, amazing celebration and remembrance of God's deliverance. So their hearts are devoted to him in chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. Chapter 1, his word ordered their lives. Chapter 1, 1 through chapter 4. God's mission and expectations, chapter 1, first four verses. A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness of Sinai. On the first day of the second month of that year, he said, From the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors by their clans and families. List all the men 20 years old or older who are able to go to war. You and Aaron must register the troops, and you will be assisted by one family leader from each tribe. Stop. What is God's expectation for these men and women who are fully devoted to him? That they go to war. To get what? The promised land. Their inheritance. God's expectation is there's more than just being counted among the number of the redeemed from Egypt. He says, my expectation, I promised you the land. I've redeemed you from Egypt. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to go take the land. We're going to go take the land I promised you. So count off the warriors. There's a territory to gain and an enemy to fight. You will take your place and serve. If you're mine, says God, I'll be able to count on you for battle. Is this clear what God's mission and expectations are? It wasn't just to redeem them from Egypt. He has a mission for them to be on for their lives. So the men are counted. That takes a little while. Point, there's no neutrality in this battle. There's no negotiating God's will. You will either ignore God's will or you will obey it. If you're a man, you don't get to say, I don't want to go. Well, I suppose you could say that, but then you'll be out. You don't get to ignore this. You don't get to neglect it. You don't get to put it aside until it's more convenient for you. If you are 20 years old or older, you are going to war, and you're going to step into your inheritance, their inheritance. The men then are counted, or the men are counted, as we just talked about. We've got Levites who are exempted. So you have clergy and laity together ministering together to protect and uphold God's worship and God's mission. 
and the quality of Israel's relationship with God, their worship, will determine their success in battle, warfare. Their worship will determine their warfare. They'll succeed, so to speak, in warfare because their worship has been devoted, uh, it's been sincere, it's been the way God's asked for it. So their worship and their warfare go together. So God gives them his mission and his expectations. They count them in, they account for the Levites, and they have a role as well. Then God walks through the, the position of the um, camp. You've already seen the chart uh, in the handout. The tabernacle and God's presence were the most important things in the camp because he is to be at the heart of their lives and world. His house, his throne, his tabernacle is in the center of their world. Everything revolves around his tabernacle. That's not just for fun. That's to show he is, I am to be at the center of your lives, the center of your world, the center of your heart. That's my place, God is telling them. So he gives each tribe its place. Does he vote? No. He assigns. That's strange. <laughs> then he instructs them in how to walk in a manner that pleased him. So they have positions and places that are according to his will and good pleasure. And this is what that looks like. The tribes are all arrayed around the camp, including the Levites and the priests. And then he specifies how they are to walk, right? Who goes first? What tribe leads out? Then these tribes go, and then the Levites show up, and then you take the tabernacle stuff, and then these tribes are next. He orders the, the entire column of people. So he's determined, appointed, however you want to say that, where each of them live and how each of them walk. He's also assigned to the Levites. Again, did they get to vote? No. He said, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to do the other thing. And he made sure that every tribe knew what it was that they had been tasked to do. Big point of this chapter is God is at the center of their life and his word ordered their lives. They were to walk, rest, live and move and have their being. I know, that's New Testament, huh? Live, move and have their being in and around his word. This is what God said to do and this is how we're going to walk it out. He told the priests what they were supposed to do. He told the Levites what they were supposed to do. I'll just tell you how you know, up on things I am. The Gershonites had the software. 
They had all the blankets and all the coverings and all those kinds of things. The Merarites had all the hardware, the pillars, the posts, the bases, the stands, all the hard things. And the Kohathites had the holy things. Now remember, the Gershonites and the Merarites got carts because their stuff could have been heavy. And they got to pull the carts along with all this stuff on it. The Kohathites had to pack it out on their shoulders. I mean, they had to carry it physically. So the priests had their role. The Levites have their role. And finally, the census is completed. In chapter 4, every male over 20 years old is expected to be on mission with a role and a contribution toward the whole. That was God's expectation. That's how he set it up. Final thing is, then you get into this thing, you go, what is this doing in here? This whole thing about purity. Okay, so we've got their deliver- God's deliverance and presence prompts their wholehearted devotion. God's word orders and guides their daily walk. And now they start talking about purity and purity in marriage. And then the Nazarites. And what? Here it is. God's presence and mission demand holy and separated lives. That's the point of these chapters. There's a lot of detail in there, which we're not going to go into. You can read it if you'd like. But the point of these two chapters is God's presence and mission demand holy and separated lives. There can be no hidden sin on this mission, but only holiness and a consecrated physical lifestyle. That's what's needed to go on mission with God. So they had to walk in purity. He's really calling them to a holistic life on mission. Their hearts were devoted to him because he had loved them first and redeemed them from Egypt. They loved him most and put him first in their lives. They had a walk that was guided and ordered by his word. God's word and nothing else was to guide and order their walk of faith to the promised land. And they were ready to lead holy and pure lives. No hidden sin, but holiness and a consecrated lifestyle. You see those things in these chapters? This is the big 50,000 foot flyover of chapters 1 through 9. Devotion, a walk guided and ordered by his word and ready to lead, ready to walk pure and holy lives. They are ready to go by the end of chapter 9. And so it's surprising as we read the story of Numbers. Numbers is a story of the struggle of real people, redeemed people with divided hearts who still look back Resisting God as they hunger for and nurture tender thoughts of Egypt. Who look around and complain. Who look within and make satisfying their own desires one of their primary aims. Who don't cry out in confession until they first cried out in pain. Numbers is a story of the struggle of real people. It's also the story of a journey, 
that should have led them from bondage to freedom, fulfillment, and fruitfulness, that eventually did lead them from living to follow self to living to follow God. A story of a journey where giants were to be confronted and walled cities were to be overthrown, but personal weaknesses seemed larger than even God. Numbers is a story of choices, walking by sight that leads to fear, disobedience, discipline, and maybe even disaster, versus walking by faith that leads to obedience, blessing, and progress. And with every choice, can God really be trusted in this situation? Numbers is a story of waste and wandering. Potential conquerors became wanderers. They remained in between, in no man's land, in the wilderness for 40 years. They fell short of all God had purposed for them in their lives and in their generation. It's also a story of learning from past failures, a story of God's gracious second chances, a reminder that neither great intentions nor great beginnings guarantee great endings. Ultimately, Numbers is a warning to God's people. Unbelief and disobedience can cause us any of us or all of us to fall short of all God has for us in our generation. Numbers is a warning to God's people. What does God expect from us? Underline us. What does God expect from you? What does God expect from me? Again, from his point of view, there's obviously more to being rescued from Egypt, or sin, in quotes, than just being counted among the number of the redeemed. There's fulfilling his, God's, expectation of being one of those on whom he can count to pursue his purposes and his mission today. Christian, can God count on you to press into his mission for your generation? Can God count on me to press into his generation, his mission for my generation? Can God count on you? If you don't have a mission statement, here is your mission statement for the rest of your life. 
put it somewhere where you can see it. My mission statement, press into my inheritance. My mission is the same as Israel's mission, in a sense. And I am to press into my inheritance. God didn't just redeem me from sin, from Egypt, from the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which we've talked about before, right? Remember? Right? What's right here? Here's the doorway. How did they leave Egypt? By grace, God told them to do this. Through faith, under blood. Remember how he told them to leave? These are redeemed people who go into the wilderness, and starting next week, when you look at numbers, you're going to go, What are they doing? They're going to go out in the wilderness. God says, here's your, here's your promised land. I promised it to you hundreds of years ago. It's right over here. It's, it's, a, it's a great place. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Come on. I want to give this to you. It's yours. So how do they have to get here? They have to go through the wilderness. Same is true for us. We've been held captive by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the evil one. He had us enslaved and in bondage. Along came the Redeemer, and he says, by grace, through faith in my finished work and under my own blood, I deliver you, I redeem you from Egypt, in quotes. And I have a promised land for you. Did you know that? Did you know he has a promised land for you? If you love the New Testament, like I do, you know what this promised land looks like. First, it's Jesus himself. It's Jesus' character. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our promised land is Jesus' inheritance for us, already laid up for us in heaven. We looked at Ephesians 1-3 a couple of times ago. What does he put there for us? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms has been put where? On account for you in heaven because of him. Every, not some, every spiritual blessing. This is part of your promised land. This is part of your inheritance. Do you not want it? Our promised land is Jesus himself getting to be with him, getting to be like him, his character, the things he's already laid up for us in heaven. It's also God's role of service for each of us 
it's already planned out in advance for us to walk in. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, very familiar verses to you, right? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, so that no man can boast. What's verse 10? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he, in your translation, it says, which he prepared in advance for you. Right? If you look at the Greek, it's to walk in. Good works he prepared ahead of time for you to walk in. You have a promised land, and you're to go walk in it. Is this making any sense to you? You're all staring at me. He created, did he create things ahead of time for Israel to go walk in? Yes. What has he done for you? He's created things ahead of time for you to go walk in. He redeemed you here. So many Christians are right here wandering around going, I don't know what to do and where to go. I guess I got fire insurance, so I'm good. Do you not know he has more in store for you than just being counted among the number of the redeemed? He has a mission for you. In fact, he has an expectation of you to press into your inheritance, the inheritance he gave you. Did Israel know this was their inheritance? Absolutely yes. Do you know these things are your inheritance? Do you realize I'm heaping things on your head right now that you might not want? Yeah, you're probably not happy you came tonight now because you're like, oh, shoot, now I'm responsible for this. Yeah, you are. <laughs> Glad you came. 1 Corinthians 12, question. So when I interview people, oh, this is a great question. I ask them, so Psalm 139 talks about my first birth. I said, you know, um, I got a certain um, hair color, certain eye color, a certain temperament. I got certain things about me. How many of those things did you get a vote on in your mother's womb? Oh, that's right, zero. <laughs> so in my first birth, what say did I get as to who I am? Bupkis. Gosh, that seems somewhat similar, doesn't it? God appoints. Okay, <laughs> but Bill, my second birth, when I became a Christ follower. Yeah, great question. So there's some discussion if I get a lot of spiritual gifts or if I only get one. I don't know the answer to that except for I know every Christian gets at least one. 1 Peter 4.10 says, use the gift you were given. So I know every Christian gets at least one. So if I said, okay, you only get one, you get one spiritual gift. Let's just say Peter is right. One spiritual gift. What vote did I get from God regarding that spiritual gift? That's right. No vote. Because 1 Corinthians 12 tells me that the Holy Spirit appointed them according to his will. More appointing. God didn't ask me what I wanted to be when I grow up. 
He said, I've already decided what I want you to be. And what I want you to do is figure that out with me, and then I want you to go walk in it because it's there that you will be most fruitful for me and find the most personal fulfillment for yourself. I hope this is making sense. God has given you and he's given me an unbelievable promised land inheritance. Most of us don't know that's what it is, and so we just wander around in the wilderness. Our promised land is to become and possess through obedience and faith what he's already promised and given to each one of us. This gets crazier, right? Oh, gosh, this is so good. Okay, there were, right, the, uh, the tribes got some land, right? Every tribe got some land. Did any tribe get all of the land? What? No? But Israel got all the land. Just like in the church, there is every gift, but not everybody got all the gifts. Watch out now. And out of every tribe, remember, how many of them took all the land that they had been given when they were there? Try as you might, guess how much of your land you will be. Will you be able to occupy 100% of what God has given you on this side? Hint, no. They weren't able to do it. Neither are you. But we're still supposed to press into it and take it. What we've been given, we are to possess. How do you possess it? How do they possess it? This is not a hard question. How do they possess it? They had to fight the enemies and take it from them. Wait a minute, you're saying that there's enemies in God's land and God's promised land and God's inheritance for me? Yes, I am. I'm telling you, in the same way there were enemies that lived in this land, there are enemies that live in our land. And you say, you're a crazy person. That may be. That may be. Why does Paul talk to us about spiritual warfare? Because there is an expectation on God's part that we're to go to war. What do we go to war for? Our inheritance. I go to war for my inheritance. This is what God has promised me, and he wants me to have as much as I can possess under his empowerment. But guess what? There's always going to be enemies in the land. Oh, baby, you're going to love the books that are coming up. Our promised land, first and foremost, is Jesus himself. To know him, to be found in him, to be called by his name, that is a treasure and a promised land. It's his character. It's not just about what we get. Don't, I don't want to be lumped into that group. It's him. It's his character. It's his inheritance for us that he said is already there for us. 
It's his role of service that he's already planned out in advance for me to, why would Paul say to walk in it? Yes, he prepared it in advance for me, but why would Paul say to walk in it? Because it's our promised land and we're supposed to go walk in it and take it. Oh, okay, good. It's to become and possess through obedience and faith what he's already promised and given to each one of us. That's what God's expectation is. This is not his hope. This is his expectation. He did not hope Israel would obey him in faith and go from Egypt to the promised land and take it. He didn't hope they would do that. He expected they would do that. He redeemed them to do that. They needed a mission statement for their life. What are the essentials for the journey? Numbers 1 through 9, a heart devoted to God and his worship. What's competing for the allegiance of your heart? What distractions are there? Why do I care? Because your warfare and your worship are integrally tied together. And if you have very little worship, you will have very little ability to do warfare because your worship and your warfare go together. That's why we had priests and Levites and other, other people. Their worship determined their success in warfare. Our worship and our warfare are connected What's competing for the allegiance of your heart? What are distractions you face? You, not me. My distractions and yours are probably different. What are your distractions on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening? When you come into the sanctuary or into Converge or wherever you may go. What are the particular distractions you are faced with? You know yourself. You know what distractions there are. What are you doing about them? Well, I didn't know there was going to be a backhoe out in the, you know, in the intersection this morning. Yeah, we didn't either. <laughs> Sorry, we would have moved it if we would have had the keys because <laughs> we know what a distraction that is. But guess what? It's a construction season around here. <laughs> You're pretty smart people. I think you know that by now. Have you heard of these things? They're kind of new. They're clocks, and they have alarms on them. Have you ever you heard of these? They're kind of newfangled. Some of them you can even talk into, and it'll set an alarm for you. Maybe you have to get up 10 minutes early. Maybe you take another way in that's not your preferred way in, but maybe you could chart a new course into the church, one that might be filled with less distractions along the way. So that when you got here, and I see you at the information desk, and you come in the front door like this, <laughs> good morning, ah, good morning. But I know what's happening to your heart on the inside, there's still a frowny face. There's still a frowny face going on because you've got distractions. You're not really ready to go to worship. 
You got too many things in your brain. We all do. What are you going to do about that? What am I going to do? I need a heart devoted to God and his worship. I need a walk guided and ordered by his word. Do you have other counselors besides the word of God? Who? Name them and then cross them off the list. I find most people have three counselors, and I've told you this before. Um, One is experience. One is feelings. And the other is thinking. I know what God's word says, but I don't think he means that. I know what God's word says, but I don't feel like doing that. I know what God's word said, and one time, like when I was seven, I tried to do it, and it didn't work out very well, so I'm not going to do it again. Experience. Thinking, feeling, and experience tend to be our three greatest counselors, and they need to take a back seat. Better yet, put them in the trunk. Tie them up and put them in the trunk so that you've got the word of God and only his word to follow. How often are you in his word? It's between you and God. You don't answer to me for that. But if I'm going to have a walk guided and ordered by his word, I need to be in his word to know what he wants me to do. Where does he want me to go? How does he want me to get there? I also need a holy and pure physical lifestyle. And so I ask you the question, I ask myself the same question, is there hidden sin in my life? The answer to that is, of course, yes. But as soon as I become aware of it, what do I do? 1 John 1, 9, take out the bar of soap, I go to it. And he cleanses me from all unrighteousness. You say, well, I don't have any physical sin. Okay. Remember Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? It's those red words. Remember he kind of equated anger to murder? Oh, gosh, why would he do that? <laughs> oh, maybe he's driven with me. <laughs> you ever been angry enough? that you thought bad thoughts about somebody on the road? Like Jossie said this morning, I'm talking about other Christians, not you. (laughs) How about any envy or jealousy? Envy, I want what someone has, I don't have it, so I'm envious of it. Jealousy, I have something and I don't want others to take it. Jealousy and envy, two sides of a similar coin. Envy, I don't have it and I want it. Jealousy, I have it and I don't want anyone else to have it. You know where jealousy hits us? Work. What if I share my idea with a coworker? Where does that idea wind up, if it's a good idea? In the boss's office. And who got credit for it? 
not me. So you know what? I'm not sharing. Oh, okay, I'm the only sinner in the room. I got it. I got it. Well, at least I'm being transparent. Are you leading a consecrated lifestyle? Set apart. Set apart unto the Lord. Is there hidden sin in your life? Are you leading a consecrated lifestyle? What you and I need for the journey is love, obedience, faith, purity, a sensitive and responsive spirit to his leading, and an unfailing trust in him, come what may. From God's point of view, his expectation, there's more to being rescued from Egypt than just being counted among the number of the redeemed. There's fulfilling his expectation of being one of those on whom he can count to pursue his purposes and his mission today. God's will. People say, what's God's will for my life? It's right here. God's mission for your life is to possess the land he's promised you and press into your inheritance. If you have no mission statement for your life, you just got one. Write it down. Selah. My mission statement. Press into my inheritance. Press into my inheritance. Press into Jesus. Press into his character. Press into the things he's already set aside for you in Ephesians 1-3 in the heavenly realms. Press into the service, the, the, the person he's made you to be and to do what he wants done that only you can do. And remember, I don't want to dwell on this, but remember, numbers is a warning to all of us that we can fritter it away and wander the wilderness with our whole entire life. And I don't want that for myself, and I don't want that for any of you. I don't want you stuck out there. Press into your inheritance. Start tonight. Start tomorrow. For next week, read Numbers 10 through 14. 10 through 14. A great, great set of chapters. 10 through 14. What do we have coming? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 10 through 14. This is a turning point in the history of Israel. Chapters 10 through 14. Please read it. It's only a chapter a day. You can do it. I believe in you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. You are so kind and so clear with us and so loving and so gracious. Uh, thank you for your long suffering. Thank you for your loyal love to us.
Um, <laughs> you have never set your heart or affection on us and then turned away to something more interesting, intriguing, or anything else. But you have loved us, and we're grateful for that. Would you continue to impress that fact into our minds, into our hearts, and into our spirits? That we love you because you first loved us. We love you and we thank you for your word and for your teaching tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.